Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Powered by Clear Vision Development Group. This is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Than Before on the C-Suite Radio Network. I'm Tony Richards, your master coach. And today on the program, my guest is Brian R. Solomon. And I'm so excited to have Brian on the show today. He's an educator and he's an author of several books on the subjects of sports and entertainment. He's a regular contributor to Pro Wrestling Illustrated and Inside the Ropes. He's a co-host of the PWI podcast, and he also has his own podcast, and we can talk about that too. And for seven years, he was an editor for the World Wrestling Entertainment, which has been in the news a lot about the possible sale that's going on there. He lives in Connecticut with his wife and son, and he's a very good friend of mine. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tony. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Certainly. And so let's talk a little bit about where you grew up. Did you grow up in the Connecticut area or? Well, I grew up in New York City, actually. I grew up in Brooklyn and I moved to Connecticut because of the WWE job. So I started working there in 2000. I was in my late 20s and I moved there and never went back. I mean, even though I I worked there for seven years and I've been living in Connecticut now for almost for over 20 years. But you know how it goes, raising kids and getting in the school system and everything. And tell you the truth, I always I love Brooklyn. I love New York City and everybody romanticizes it and stuff. But every time I go back to my old neighborhood i'm reminded of why i only really just like to visit now because it's just not the same place anymore and i'd wanted to leave the city anyway to raise kids and so it was just a question of where we were going to go and thanks to the wwe thing it wound up being fairfield county connecticut which i love it here i've lived here since 2002 well that might be just proof positive of the old saying you can't go home again right it's very true i like every now and then we'll get kind of wistful and my wife and I, and I, our son is five years old, so he knows nothing about it. So we decided, Hey, let's go back and check out the, some of the old haunts and everything. And it was a little bit sad because a lot of the places are gone. Everybody's moved on like I have. And most of my favorite restaurants are closed up and there's, I hate to say it, but there's less and less of a reason to go back these days. It's just different. And most of the people who have stayed there the whole time that transformation took place are not noticing it as much as you are coming right. back to it. Right. I mean, it's, it's jarring. 
it's jarring. It's, it's changing right under their very nose, and they're not really in sync with that. They don't really notice that, I've found. Right. When I first moved away, I still used to, because I had all my family still there at that time. And I used to go back at least once a month and then they would come here. And so like at least every three to four weeks, I'd be going back. And in the past few years now, people pass away, people move away and things. I have no family in Brooklyn anymore. And I go back maybe once a year, maybe Mm -hmm. twice a year. And that's when you really notice it and you go, what happened? (laughs) Where is everything? I think it's cool. Uh, You know, of course, we follow each other on Twitter. And I think it's really cool when you put the day trips you take with your wife and you put your pictures on there. Sometimes you go back to the old places and then sometimes you go to all new adventures. But I appreciate you posting those pictures on there. Yeah. So, you know, then, because you've seen some of those of the trips that we take and I try to post the positive things. I treat social media like in the old days, like you'd treat a photo album or family slides from a vacation. People will sometimes go, well, don't you want to present your true self on social media and not just the good things and create this false image? And I'm going, you know what, if I'm showing somebody a slide, whatever it is, a, a slideshow, of a vacation my family took to Florida, Disney World. I'm not going to have pictures in the slideshow of arguing with my wife, of forgetting where we parked the car, of getting sick in the bathroom or whatever else. It's going to be the good stuff, the things I want to share with people, most of whom are not my closest friends, some of whom I've never even met. So no, so it is a very careful image that you at least from my philosophy that you put out into the world publicly in social media. I'm not one of these people that just bears every moment of my soul online. I just don't do that. It's not right. my I think I've been on social media since 2007. And I bet if you went back through all of my posts, which would be in the five digits, I bet you can't find six negative posts. And people will say that to me, too. Like, you have to have some things that happen to you where that and I'm like, no, really, I am that positive. I mean, that is really me. I'm a positive person. I really do shun the negativity. And I really do believe those things that I say. I'm not just putting a fall, like you said, a false image out there. Well, that's a good way to be. I mean, and and I don't consider it even being a false image either in my case, because it's just like, well, if there are negative things that happen to me or negative thoughts or whatever, I generally don't feel the need to share that with people I hardly know online. I mean, personal, I sometimes think that that's something that we've forgotten in a lot of ways. Some things are personal, some things are private, some things are not for public consumption. Well, if I cut my leg or break my arm, the first thing I'm thinking about is not putting it on picture of it on social media. Exactly. I mean, I hate to say it. I Sometimes I see things that people will put out there and it just, it baffles me. Like I've seen people, I mean, look, I'm, I know we've all gone through hard periods in our life and tough spots, but I see video that people will post where they're in an extreme emotional state or crying, upset. And I'm thinking, if I'm ever feeling that way or something's happening to me, the last thing I'm thinking of doing is let me grab my phone and (laughs) record myself and post this on TikTok or something. Maybe it's a generational thing. I simply do not understand that thinking at all. Well, let's talk a little bit about your profession. So as you're growing up, when did you first 
think about being a writer? Very early. I mean, thinking about doing it was from a very early age. I loved writing as a kid. And I know a lot of kids like to write and in school, you know, they encourage you even in elementary school to write your own stories and things. But I really, really had a passion for it. I remember I had an uncle who was in the arts. He was an actor, performer, singer, artist, every, a lot of different things. And he really encouraged me. He would see me writing these little stories and things, and he would validate it in a way that grownups don't always do. He would sit down and ask me about the story and how did I think of this and what does it mean and where'd you get the idea for this? And it really encouraged me. And even when you look at my early grades, my favorite subject was always reading and writing related things and even phonics, anything having to do with words. So I knew I wanted to write, but you never know if you could really do that as something that you can make money at or as a career, even a part-time career. You, you never really know. But even when I got to college and I was majoring, I was an English major, you know, I started writing on the college paper. And even then, like, I never really knew where I was going at that time. If this was going to be what I really wind up doing, I was still finding my way. I kind of hoped that it would be. Actually, I was even writing on the high school paper. So very, very early in college, I started, obviously, I was into wrestling even then. Mm -hmm. So I was writing some things about wrestling, and I was already sending clips around to magazines, newspapers, whatever the case may be trying to see if I could make anything happen out of it. And eventually it did. And it wasn't even just wrestling, but even my job right out of college was a full-time. And in fairness, this was in the 90s when I think there was a lot more opportunities than there are now. It was a full-time staff position in an office as a writer for a reference book publisher, like a mm -hmm. nine to five, which these days, that's like a holy grail kind of a job. And it was my job right out of college. So I was a little bit spoiled, I guess. So what was your first job that you, uh, was it at the reference book company? Yes, it was a company. They're still in existence. It's called H.W. Wilson. Back in the day, especially before the internet, before online catalogs and things, they were known for the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. That was their claim to fame. And so if you were a student, if you were a researcher, you knew who they were. That was where you went to find any magazine, journal, article you needed to find, and it would be referenced and indexed. That was their main thing. And on the back of that, they would do all these biographical dictionaries, world authors, world musicians, Nobel Prize winners, whatever the case may be. And so, yeah, I was about a year out of college. I was actually going out of undergrad. I was going for my master's degree at the time at night. And I was working full time in this office in the South Bronx, writing these biographical articles and just loving it, loving the fact that I got to write on salary. I mean, again, I didn't fully, it wasn't the best pay in the world. It was a starting position, mm -hmm. but I still was very, very glad to have it. Did you go from that to the WWE then? I did. What was that interview process like? Were you smart to the business when you went there? I was because the internet had exploded in the late nineties. And yeah. so just to give you the time frame, I was working for HW Wilson. I started there in June of 1997. I had been online a little bit. I didn't even, I didn't have a computer at home yet, especially not a web enabled computer, not a Windows computer. 
So I was kind of like a lot of people, I was experiencing the internet in internet cafes and bookstores and the library at school and just discovering things. I didn't have an email address. And then when I got there in 97, I started becoming much more aware because on lunch breaks, any kind of downtime I would have between articles, I started going, what is this internet all about? And because I'm a wrestling fanatic, that's one of the first things I wanted to learn about. So I got smartened up a lot by the internet, actually. So by the time I went to WWE, I had already been following the backstage stuff for maybe three years, two and a half years through the whole Montreal screw job. I mean, that was an eye opener. Yeah. That really, I feel like the, that was the watershed moment for internet. As far as wrestling goes, when people started going, my God, like what goes on there? This is more interesting than what I see on television. I got married in June of 99 and I was, I was so I'd been there for two years at Wilson I was looking for something different. I was looking for a bump in pay or something that had a little more advancement in it. And honest to God, I not that I'd forgotten about wrestling, but I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm going to write about wrestling. Mm -hmm. I knew I was writing and I loved wrestling, but I'd moved on a little bit in thinking in terms of I'm going to write about wrestling until I found an ad, believe it or not, in the New York Times classified on paper back when they had a classified section. And it was amazing. It was like too good to be true. L literally the WWF scratch logo right in the middle of the classified section in the middle of these little tiny print columns. And I thought, well, what the hell? It's Stanford. It's not that far away. I'm not going to get it. I'll give it a shot. They were looking for a copy editor, not even a writer. Wow. Like a proofreader, basically. Mm -hmm. And what I found out later was this was the fall of 99. So it was right after Vince Russo had left the company to go to WCW. And he took a lot of staff with him, some staff. And so there was a big shakeup happening in the publications department, and they were hiring all new people. There was a new person in charge. They were bringing in all new people. So that's what this was part of. And on the day that I interviewed, it was October of 99. It was the day the company went public. It was a Monday morning it was the day of the public offering. I also believe it was the week, which I now discovered, that Gorilla Monsoon passed away. Oh, and, wow. Because now I'm writing that book. So yeah, you're doing research for that, yeah. yeah. Right. And it was not easy. I didn't get it right away. I had to go to Stanford, I think, three different times, which is like an hour and a half drive from Brooklyn. What I found out later was that they initially hired somebody else. So I went in, they picked someone else to be the copy editor, and then they quickly discovered that it was too much for one person to handle. Thank God they discovered that. <laughs> and they said, let's bring that other guy in and let's have another look at him. And to be honest, like I went in and I hated the interview that I did. I thought, oh, I came off like what I tried to do was they always tell you, don't let on that you're a big wrestling fan. They hate right. that. But, yep. So right. I went the other way completely acting like, I knew nothing about it. I'd never seen it before. Pretty much all famous people hate that, no matter right. who they are or what they do. If you're glomming on, they don't like that. But I felt like I went too far in the other direction. and you I actually all, You all came off disinterested. Right. And I called them up. And I actually called up when the process started again, which was like the very beginning of 2000, the end of, of 99. 
And I said, I don't think I came off well in that second interview. Can I come in again? I really want to let, be honest with you. And they let me come back. And the way I sold myself was, which I think was my greatest strength, was I am the best of both worlds. Yes, I am a wrestling fan. Yes, I have deep knowledge of this product and its history. I have a master's degree in English. I am a trained professional writer. If wrestling didn't exist, I'd still be writing. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be going through the halls trying to hit people with chairs or holding up signs. I'm not a shameless mark. I can give you both. I know this stuff inside and out, and I'm a professional writer. And I don't know how many people you're going to find that with. And I got the job. And I got in. I started February. I started Valentine's Day 2000. Who'd you interview with? I interviewed with a few different people, again, because it was three interviews, three times. Uh, Right. One was the head of creative services, which is a department that creates everything from character designs to posters, merchandise, ring skirts. Anything that's going to be part of the production. Yeah, whatever they need. And they needed the copy editor badly. So I interviewed with that, their head, which was a woman named Debbie Bonanzio, who at that point, she had been there since the mid-80s. So she was a real veteran. And I also interviewed with the new head of publications, who was a guy named Barry Werner. He had been the sports editor for the New York Daily News. Mm-hmm. And he had initially been brought in, I believe, to basically help Vince Russo to be a consultant to be somebody who could run sort of the day-to-day when Vince was off doing television, which he was booking TV. And then when Vince abandoned ship, when Russo left, Barry, it got dropped in his lap. They said, okay, you're in charge now. Oh, wow. Started bringing in his new people. And so when I first got hired, it was a little bit of a tug of war. Creative services wanted me publications wanted me. They were sharing me. My business card actually said creative services, but I slowly but surely got absorbed into publications mainly, even though I did work for all the other departments in the company, whoever needed copy editing. And I'll be honest, I had no experience as a copy editor. I was a writer strictly. I had not done any proofreading. I was still pretty young, pretty new. I'd never edited anything, only writing. And I got my foot in the door. And after a few months, when they saw that I knew the product so well and that I actually knew how to write, they had a writer, a staff writer, Robert Bledsoe, who left about nine months after I got there, maybe less. And they basically said, why don't we just give it to Brian? Instead of hiring a new writer, they hired a new copy editor to replace me. And they made me the new writer. And I was off to the races at that point. Cool. So you were there for seven years, right? And then in what time frame did you decide to write your first book? So, yeah, I started there in 2000 and I was there for seven years. And I had an idea right when I first started, when I was still a copy editor, one of the things they had me do was I would proofread trading cards, which is as tedious as it sounds. And then they started having me write some trading cards, like copy for them. And the best part was I got to double dip because it would be considered a licensee job because I'd be working for Tops or whoever was the licensee. So I would get paid separately. 
So I started taking an interest going, wow, if I can only come up with my own idea for a trading card set, that would be great. Yeah. I had this idea back in 2000. They were not doing anything with nostalgia or legends or the way they are now. The Hall of Fame was in mothballs. They were very forward looking. It was the attitude era. All they cared about was the next show. And I had this idea. What if we did a trading card set? called the legends of the WWF at the time. They didn't even have a legends program yet. And my idea was you only hear about what post WrestleMania, post Hulk Hogan. What if we did a trading card set for the older lapsed fans that focused on the early stars of capital wrestling of the worldwide wrestling federation, the stars of the 50s, 60s, 70s, early eighties, just that era. And it sort of was floated around and they were like, we don't really do anything with history like that. And I'm like, you're, you're really missing the boat. There's an audience out there of, you could have customers that don't even watch the show anymore buying this. Right. And so they were like, that's a great idea. Let's table it for now. We'll see what happens if we decide to do more nostalgia based vintage stuff. So it sort of got socked away, but then WWE had this deal with Simon and Schuster publishers. And at that time it was the, the mankind book, the rock book, these books were coming out China. All of a sudden there was a whole market for wrestling books. And they said, you know what? We have this deal with Simon and Schuster where we have to put out a book every month. No. And that's hard yeah. <laughs> because it can't be a superstar book every month. We desperately need ideas. And I said, Oh, you know what? Remember that trading card set idea I had, Legends of the WWF? What if it became a book? It could be, on, give me a dead month when you have nothing going on, right? When Stone Cold is busy and doesn't want to write a book. Yeah. We'll make a book. And it wound up getting turned into a book. And it took forever, though, because it was not a priority. It just was not a priority. The project got started up again in 2003, and I wrote the book in about six months. And again, because of my training with H.W. Wilson, it was a biographical dictionary, basically, of all the stars of the 50s through 1983, basically. If you had made your name in the WWF in that era, you were in the book. But it still got shelved. I wrote it in six months. It was done by the end of 2003. But they kept going, well, we're pushing it back because... So-and-so is writing a book. We're pushing it back because we're doing this book. It was like the lowest priority. It finally came out in February of 2006. That's when it came out. Six years after I first pitched the idea. <laughs> and that was my first book, which the name became WWE Legends. And it was through WWE that I published it. And that was about the time or a little bit after where message boards were coming out and mm -hmm. people were actually forming groups about these legends and, and things. Now there are whole internet groups about them, but back then there wasn't a whole lot around. So what was the catalyst for you to move on from there and what'd you do next? Well, that was also around the time I was almost getting ready to leave WWE. I had progressed really far working there. I went from the copy editor, like I said, to the staff writer. Eventually, I was managing editor, which is for the purposes of that job, I was running the day-to-day -day operation of the magazines at one point. Because after Barry was let go, 
for about a year, I was the de facto editor in chief. And maybe people will dispute that and say Solomon, you know, got a big head, but I was there. I was running the department. I was running the magazines. The only things I lacked was the title and the pay to go along with it. I was doing the job because there was no one else there to do it. It was an absolute wasteland. If it wasn't for me stepping up, I don't know what would have happened, but the department, it would have required Shane McMahon to kind of take a day-to-day hands-on approach, which he was not about to do. Yeah, So I was there for a while until eventually there was so much personnel change that I became obsolete like everyone does who works there long enough. And they had all their own people. It was like a whole new regime. And by mid-2007, I was gone from there. But I wound up then going through a series of jobs after that where it was the landscape had changed so much for writers in even just the eight years or 10 years since I had come to H.W. Wilson. There were so much fewer staff jobs for writers. So it wound up becoming more marketing related things. I worked for a series of companies. I worked for the Edible Arrangements Corporation. I worked for the University of Bridgeport, various different marketing companies doing that kind of work and writing on the side. Like I became a contributor to Pro Wrestling Illustrated freelance. And I've been doing that now for 15 years. Yeah. But I wound up doing a career change after a while because I looked around and I said a couple of things. I said, first of all, how did I become a marketer? That is not what I wanted to be doing. How did this happen? I'm writing copy about chocolate covered pineapple. And I'm going, this is not how I envision things. And I also, you start to look around in these offices as I was getting a little older and I start to go, boy, I'm now the oldest person here. I used to be the youngest person here. I'm not even 40, but I feel like I'm aging out. I'm looking around and I'm going, there's nobody here doing what I'm doing who's over a certain age. So I started thinking about a career change and I had wanted to be a teacher originally in college. That was one of my goals. And I got pulled into writing, thinking, oh, I'll get back to the teaching. I'll get certified. I'll do this. I'll do that. And so in my late 30s, I started shifting gears and I got my certification through a program in Connecticut called the Alternate Route Certification to become a high school English teacher. And I did that for a number of years. Oh, well, one thing we did not mention when I was reading off your bio and accomplishments stuff, you also write for Letterboxd, which when I see your tweets, it prompts me to watch whatever you've just reviewed. (laughs) It gives me something to write down. I need to watch that. I haven't watched that in a while. So you do that, too. You do film reviews. and Yes, but I do want to stress, though, that's strictly for fun. That's Yeah, sure. I would love to be paid to write film reviews, and I would love to be an official blogger for Letterboxd or whatever the case may be if they're looking for somebody. But but that's just, you know, I have a passion for movies. And every now and then you kind of want to get out of your wheelhouse a little bit and stretch your legs a little. And I, I love to write about movies. So I kind of use that as an outlet. And I share all the reviews on social media because that's one of the things about me is I got very spoiled at a very young age writing for national newsstand publications and things. I don't like writing in a bubble, anything, even movie reviews. I want to be read by the biggest audience I can find. So I just share the hell out of everything. Yeah. Now, 
are you kind of the same way with movies that you are with pro wrestling? You like the older stuff better than the newer stuff or? Yeah, that's sort of a theme with me, I guess. Yeah, I, well, that's me too. I watched Farley Granger double feature last night. I mean, I, I just, I like the old stuff. I like the film. Yeah. I like film noir quite a bit. And I do uh, too. I think, let's say if we look at the history of major motion pictures for about a hundred years, about 1920-ish or so, when really feature films become a thing up until the present day. Now that's a century. Now my contention is, the first 50 years, right, 1920 to 1970, you will find a much larger percentage of the greatest movies ever made, far more than half, than you will find from 1970 to 2020. That's my own opinion, especially past 1980. The 70s is really another kind of golden age of filmmaking. I love movies of all eras. I really do. And I watch movies from all eras, but I really feel... Over the past 40 years, that the motion pictures have been gradually, as an art form, declining gradually. And to the point where we're at now, where it's just strictly bottom line, whatever makes the most money, whatever, you know, keep going back to the same wells over and over again. The art of storytelling is not what it used to be, the scripts, acting. It's just simply not what it used to be. I've noticed an extremely accelerated decline in, say, the past 10, 15 years, especially, where I never used to feel this way, but I feel like there's less and less movies that come out that I feel I have any interest in and that are aimed at an audience beyond just kids that like to go see superhero movies, you know, it's, mm. it's becoming more and more of a thing. Like I remember when I was a young person, when I was a kid, I would go to see movies and it wasn't just me. I remember my friends would go on dates to see the kind of movies that I don't think any young person would have virtually any young person would have any interest in going to see today. It's just a different world. I remember having discussions with my friends in the cafeteria in high school about like Goodfellas or JFK and movies like that. And did you see it yet? And what'd you think of it? I taught high school. That's not what they're seeing anymore. You know what I mean? Right. It's not like, it's a good example. Like Scorsese in particular, he did Goodfellas. Now he did the Irishman. Now for my money, I thought the Irishman was one of the best movies he had done in decades, in decades. It was phenomenal. And I feel like if it had come out in 1990, it would have been every bit of a splash success as Goodfellas was. But because it came out now, it was really noticed only by real cinephiles, kind of older audiences, a different kind of audience. And I feel like if Goodfellas had come out today, it would have the same fate. It would not be a mainstream successful film. It would be considered a niche art house movie that a small dedicated audience went to see. So, yeah, so I am passionate about older movies. I really am. I mean, is that the distribution system? Is that one of the reasons why? Like, yes. Because now the Irishman was basically distributed on Netflix, whereas Goodfellas would have had a wider distribution theater release where more masses of people would have gone instead of individual people watching it in, on Certainly. Netflix. Certainly, but it's a vicious cycle. So 
the distribution changed because they don't have the same confidence in those kind of movies making a lot of money anymore. So they try to minimize losses. But why did that happen? Well, that happened because they stopped putting the focus on movies like that. So it feeds itself. I feel like in a way, it's almost like wrestling where they always talk about how you train your audience, you educate your audience to be interested in the product you're giving them. And so now we have an audience that really in their minds, the only movies worth leaving your house, buying a ticket, going to see is a movie that's a giant special effects extravaganza, a spectacle. Otherwise, I'm just going to stay home. But they've been trained to think that way. If you go back to the 1940s, the average person was going to the movies every single week, sometimes more than once a week. Now, granted, they didn't have television. And not only that, but what movies were they going to see in that era? They were dramas. They were comedies. They were maybe gangster movies, Westerns. But they were movies about very often real people in real life. They were movies whose subject matter would probably be considered somewhat dull by a lot of audiences today. But the audiences then ate it up again because they were conditioned to expect that experience when they went to the movies. So it's this process that feeds itself now, unfortunately. And everybody talks about the death of the mid-level movie, right? Where it's like you either get these little tiny indie movies and horror movies and things, these low budget things, or you get gigantic franchise movies, Star Wars, Marvel, whatever else. But the movies that were respectable budgets, big name stars, but were not gigantic, big budget blockbusters, those movies are gone. They're so hard to find. It's sort of like they've morphed into television shows now. It's like ever since The Sopranos, those concepts have become premium drama series now, like instead of what would have been turned into a movie in the past. So that's where you go when you want to see mature, grown-up stories with name actors, marketable actors. You go to television now. You go to TV drama instead of film. Well, I think, too... I don't know exactly how to put this. I'm most familiar with this in the music business and in broadcasting. But the same thing has happened there where there used to be about 50 or 60 people who made the decision about what got played on radio stations. And I was one of those 50 or 60 people. And it used to be that way with movies, too, because you had a certain group of people that owned movie theaters. And so they had to make a movie that was good enough that the movie theater owner wanted to put it in his movie theater to draw a crowd. But now there's so many distribution channels and everything's user generated. I decide what I see. Nobody else decides it. I do. And I got all these different places where I can select. And there was a limit to that back 25 or 30 years ago. There were only five or six movies a week to see. And there were only certain places to see them. And now it's unlimited. Everybody can make a movie. Everybody can have a movie distributed because there's somewhere, somehow, somebody will distribute it on some channel for you. That's very true. And you have changing tastes and changing expectations. Another big example that I point to, because it's recent, is if you look at West Side Story. Now, this is a perfect example that Spielberg just remade. Now, 
the original West Side Story movie, 1960, 61, I think it was, that movie, a musical based on a Broadway show, it was the highest grossing film of its year, 1961. And at the time, it became one of the top 10 highest grossing films of all time. Mm-hmm. Now, you get to, I guess it was last year, right? Or 2021, I think. Steven Spielberg, one of our greatest directors ever, makes this film. And it's stupendous. I don't know if you saw it. I mean, a matter of opinion, but it's fantastic. It's every bit as good as the original version, in some ways, even better. Yeah. But what does it do? It bombs. <laughs> it's a complete, un- it was a critical success, nominated for many awards. No one went to see this movie. Now, part of it, it's a number of factors. Part of it was they put it on Disney+. Plus. I don't know what the numbers were there as far as viewership, but I think we could all agree there was a very tiny, tiny amount of interest compared to the original West Side Story. That's the kind of a movie that is not going to make a blip on the market anymore and didn't in 2021. And you're talking about a sea change in the tastes of the American movie going public in a nutshell. Now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, and that was a great example, by the way. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's the same argument Jim Cornette makes about pro wrestling, that yes. there used to be a higher barrier to even enter into the business. And there were only like 25 people who controlled everything that happened. And now almost anybody can be in the business or do the business or whatever. Well, you just say you're a wrestler now and you're a wrestler. It's like magic, you know, (laughs) (laughs) the quality, the control is not really what it used to be, especially on the indie level. I still believe it's very much what it used to be, let's say, in WWE. But on the indie level, it's certainly not. It's the Wild West. So your book on the Sheik, is that your most successful project so far? I'll tell you when I get the royalty statements. Oh, okay. I believe that... It is, although ironically, the funny thing is, as much as I write about wrestling and I love to write about wrestling, and I am again currently, my most successful book that I'm sure of at the moment is a book that I wrote about Godzilla films. I wrote a book called Godzilla FAQ, which at the time I treated as, this is when you you have to get outside the bubble sometimes and think about what most people want to read. I thought of it as, oh, I'll take a little break. I'll write a book about Godzilla movies. It'll be fun. I like Godzilla movies. And then I'll get back to the wrestling. And it wound up just going crazy. At one point, it was the highest selling book about Godzilla in the world. That's fantastic. Yeah. And for another example, now I have a book I just, I finished last year. That's come, it's sort of gone under the radar because I push the wrestling stuff a lot online, but I have a book coming out in May about the history of superheroes Mm -hmm. and history of comic books. And it's coming out right in time for Father's Day. It's called Superheroes. Superheroes, the complete history of, I don't remember the full name, but it's called Superheroes. <laughs> and I should probably learn that if I'm going to be Pro- pro- to Probably it. so, yeah. Well, I'm yeah. good training ground for you. I remind you to learn that. Yes. But that's the thing. See, it comes out in May and I have all the confidence in the world that it's going to do very well because of the subject matter. It's a very hot subject right now. And that's why I pitched it. It doesn't matter who wrote it. It's that it's the right time and the right subject. So that book might wind up becoming my most successful book. I guess we'll have to see, but yeah, I mean, 
it was meant to be like a break in between the wrestling stuff. <laughs> did you enjoy writing them all in a fairly similar fashion or did you enjoy writing one over the other? I have it here, by the way, because that was just unforgivable. It's called Superheroes, the History of a Pop Culture Phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. Yeah, That's yeah. The title of the book. Great. But what was the question again? What do you enjoy writing about the most? Did you enjoy writing about all those things similarly or was your writing experience? Did you enjoy one over the other? Well, I've never been the kind of person, even going back to my school years, there are some people that can apply themselves to anything. And that's a great gift to have. And I'm afraid I just don't have it because I go insane if I'm given stuff to work on that I don't have an interest in. It's very, very difficult for me. Right. But when I stick to things I enjoy, I could write about it forever. I could talk about it forever. And so my books are always for hire. I pitch the idea. I'm contracted to do it. I'm paid. And then I write it. I don't shop books around. I don't have the time to put in that much effort into something that I don't even know is going to get published. More power to people that can do that. One day I will write the great American novel and I will <laughs> do that when I have the time and the luxury. But right now I don't have that luxury. So I go with ideas that I know a lot about. And that's also how I've wound up in nonfiction. But like publishers that I work with, like I work with Roman and Littlefield for some of my books. And I work with ECW Press for some when they come to trust you and they know you've done well for them, like I know the Sheik book, Blood and Fire, was just about, I believe, ECW Press's top selling book of 2022. So when you do that kind of thing, then you can sort of say, hey, I have this other idea. Can I do this? And they'll be more open to it. When I did Pro Wrestling FAQ, which was part of a series, different FAQ things, I said, well, if you would like me to write other books like this, here are other things that I know a lot about. And I made a whole list, you know, and at the time, that's how Godzilla happened. And later on, that's how superheroes happened. And I had to look to make sure they hadn't done one already. Like I was going to do a Star Wars one, but it was already done. I told them I could do a Frank Sinatra one. I could probably do that in my sleep with one hand behind my back. I was going to do one about horror films or specifically zombie films. Because again, subjects that I'm interested in, just widely disparate. I said, I could do one about Italian opera if you want me to. There are subjects that I feel I have a comfortable base knowledge of that I could then research and produce a good book. And the same goes with the wrestling biographies too. It has to be a person whose life and career I'm interested in. Got it. So that's why you're moving on to write a Gorilla Monsoon book then. is Yes. And that feeds your... Talking about the WWE from years gone by, that whole passion for things that happened before WrestleMania. I mean, certainly Gorilla Monsoon was a wrestling star before that. I mean, he was on television during the WrestleMania period, but as a commentator. That's why I wanted to do his story. What made it attractive to me is that he spans both worlds. So he is known to even casual wrestling fans even people that are a little too young, they know the name, they've heard the voice. It's like the voice of WWE history is the voice of Gorilla Monsoon. And at the same time, though, he is also somebody whose career goes back to the early days, who was wrestling in the 60s, selling out the Garden and Bruno San Martino and everything else. So it allows me to get into the history with the confidence of knowing 
I'm not writing about some obscure WWF wrestler from the 60s that nobody under the age of 60 is going to know who they are. I know I can be confident the name Gorilla Monsoon does the work for me. Just the name, just saying, hey, this is the biography of Gorilla Monsoon. People are like, sign me up. Where do I buy it? You know what I mean? So that frees me up to tell the kind of story I want to tell to be able to write about the New York wrestling scene in 1963 and feel confident people are going to buy the book because, like I said, it's that name that that carries it for you. Well, Brian, you'll have to come back sometime. I mean, we could go on about any of these subjects for a long time, but I know you've got things you've got to do, and I've taken up quite a bit of your time. I am going to ask you my standard list of closing questions that I ask every guest that comes on the show. These are sort of rapid fire. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What do you consider to be the best memory that would come to mind for you? Just in general in life? Yep. Oh my goodness. I don't even know where to begin. The best specific memory. Yes. My kids being born. How could you top that? I mean, just becoming a parent, which I've done three different times and it's been three completely different experiences every time. What's interesting, professionally, I have an incredible memory and it pops into my head of we did a magazine about the greatest villains of WWE and Roddy Piper was one of them. And he had this is when I worked there and we produced this whole magazine. I put my heart and soul into it and I got to be at the garden and have Roddy Piper himself on Monday Night Raw bring a copy of it into the ring and put it over on live television. And I'm watching standing about 20 feet away. So professionally, that's the big one. That's cool. And personally, it's the birth of my children without a question. Who's the number one hero in your life? Well, in the whole history of my life, I would have to say my grandfather, who's unfortunately not with us anymore. But my grandfather was everything to me. I mean, he's my model for just being a father, a husband, a man. He was like another father to me. It was uh, He was so deeply involved in my life and in shaping who I was. So I'd have to say him just overall. I mean, unfortunately, most of the biggest heroes of my life and the people who've inspired me are gone. So it's hard to have a living choice. I got to be very honest. That's the way it goes as we get older. What's the top core value you subscribe to? I want to say honesty. Here's the thing. A lot of people will automatically have a knee-jerk reaction and say honesty absolutely is the number one thing. And I would temper it because I do think honesty is. But I also feel that discretion is important. And you need to have the judgment to be able to know that sometimes honesty can actually be cruel. And I've learned that with age, (laughs) that pure 100% honesty is sometimes actually very egotistical because you're putting your own sense of self-satisfaction ahead of everyone else's feelings. And so sometimes having the sense to know when to be careful and discreet about other people's feelings is just as important as total honesty. So honesty and discretion combined would be my most important value. Who's the most important person in your life? See, you you want me to pick one person? I can't because I have my wife and I have three children and I love them all equally. So I can't, I'm going to be like, yeah, you know, it's my, it's my, it's my daughter, you know, screw everybody else. I feel 
equal love and affection for the four of them. My son, Peter, my son, Jack, my daughter, Layla, my wife, Jamie. I mean, they're my core and they're my inner circle and they're everything to me. It's one of the things my grandfather taught me that I never forgot. And maybe it's a big Italian thing. I don't know. Some people say that Italians go too far with it. But I really do believe that family is the most important thing and that you can never be as close to people as you are with your family. And maybe it's because you don't choose them. You're born into it and you don't pick them. But I found that to be true. Friends come and go, even great friends. Family is the number one thing that there is. What's your favorite thing? Professional wrestling. (laughs) What's your favorite food? I'm a big seafood eater. I grew up with Sicilian cuisine. So I'm one of these people, I'll go to a restaurant every time and I'll say, I want to try something I've never had before. And I'll wind up getting the same damn thing I have every time I go. I love linguine with clam sauce. I always like getting the big kind of fruit of the sea platter everywhere I go. I'm a big, huge seafood fan. Shrimps, mussels, all that stuff. Most beautiful place you've ever been to. That would have to be Italy. I went for my honeymoon to Florence, Venice, and Rome on a 10-day trip that I wish I'd turned into much longer than that. And I completely fell in love, and I felt like if I could speak Italian, I probably would still be there now. I wasn't sure I really even wanted to come back. If you could describe success in one word, what would the word be? Happiness. Happiness is really what it is. That's what everyone's looking for. And that can come from financial security. It can come from a million different ways. It could come from fulfillment in terms of achieving goals. But you're looking for the sense of contentment, happiness, lack of worry that comes with that. That's the ultimate goal. And I think it's the ultimate end of success. How do you want to be remembered? I would like to be remembered Well, by my family, I would like to be remembered as somebody who loved everyone and who really wanted everyone to be together as much as possible. From a public point of view, career-wise, I really would like to be remembered as somebody who tried his best to bring intelligence and critical skill and writing ability to a subject matter, meaning pro wrestling, that isn't always taken seriously enough as it should be and tried to treat it with dignity and respect and to preserve its history in a respectful way. If you could go back and have a conversation with a younger Brian, what would the advice be for him? Not to be so worried (laughs) without a doubt. I think about that all the time. And one of the things that makes me think about it is being a parent because when you do it years later, again, you realize the things that you should worry about and the things you don't have to worry about. And you can conserve your energy on places where it's needed. So I think I would do that. It's when you go through things in life and you go through hardship and struggle and you come out the other end of it and you go, I'm still here. (laughs) I'm okay. I made it. It's going to be all right. You don't know that when you're 25 years old. You think everything's the end of the world. Right. So I would give myself that perspective of the world is not ending. Enjoy the moment, plan for the future, but also enjoy the moment you're in because you're going to be fine. What's your favorite sound? The sound of the bell ringing. (laughs) Out of all the lessons you've learned in your life, what's the best lesson? 
Well, I've learned a lot of lessons, but I guess I would say this is something this is okay. The last conversation, meaningful conversation I had with my grandfather before he passed away, I got to see him a few more times, but the last meaningful conversation, he had perspective. Now he was very sick. He had lost his wife, my grandmother. He was at the end of his life and he knew it. And he said to me something which was not always characteristic of how he was when he was younger either. He said to me, you have to be, you have to be happy in life. Everything else comes out of that. And if you don't know how to find your happiness, if you give too much of yourself, you can lose yourself. And then you're also of no good to anyone else. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you have to never lose sight of the things in life that bring you joy. I love that. I love that. Well, thanks for sharing those answers with us. Brian R. Solomon, who has written the book on the cheek and these other books that we've mentioned today in the podcast, and you should get those and enjoy them. And when will the Gorilla Monsoon book be out? So I've just started. It's going to be called Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. And right now I'm being realistic. I know my manuscript is due in May of 2024. All right. How the process works. I don't have a set date yet for publication. I would estimate either the very end of 2024, if I'm being completely realistic, it's probably more like early 2025, just be realistic. I don't have an exact date yet, but I should know in the next few months. Well, you'll have to come back. We'll keep everybody up to date between now and then, and you come back and talk to us again when that happens. Anytime, and hopefully my voice will be in better form then. I have to apologize. I sound like a croaking frog. (laughs) Both of us, both of us. Brian R. Solomon. Brian, thanks again. Thank you. Well, that's Brian R. Solomon, everybody. I just enjoy talking to him about a variety of subjects. As you can surmise from listening to today's podcast, be sure and look for his books on Amazon and other places where books are sold. Special thanks to him for stopping by today and having a conversation with us. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Tessa Hall, who always makes these shows sound so good. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony Richards 4, and you can join our free Facebook group at Tony Richards Speaker, Author, Coach. And if you'd like to get my free Monday morning memo, you can come to the ClearVision website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page, enter your email address, and you'll be signed up to get the Monday morning memo in your email inbox every single Monday, absolutely free of charge with some of my best advice ever. Until we come around and visit again next week here on Better Than Before on the C-Suite Radio Network, I'm your host, Tony Richards, reminding you that everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.